Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I am Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. When you have inflammatory, you feel like you're on this on this uh, edge of a cliff with your, your toes on the over the edge of that cliff and waiting for it to crumble. So I think the very fact um, that we're still alive makes you feel like a thriver. It's not just, I don't feel like a survivor um, because that cliff crumbles frequently and I hang on for dear life. I have to say, we totally get that. I am talking with one of my dear friends, Jeannie Mason, who you may know from the Inflammatory Breast Cancer Research Foundation, which was started in August of 1999. Jeannie was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer in 1994 and was given a 3% chance of making it to five years. Well, spoiler alert, she's here 23 years later telling us all about it and the advances in breast cancer research. She was the first person in her cancer center to actually receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy, that is, receiving chemotherapy before surgery. I love quoting Jeannie left and right. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about not just having a seat at the table, but getting a voice at every table. And unless we have research, nothing is going to change. I would never say cancer was a gift. I'm not, I'm not in that camp. But I would say I've had opportunities and my life has gone a direction that's brought so much into my life that I'm grateful that I was able to go in this direction. Before we dive into today's content, I want to encourage all of you to hop on over to survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events, because if you are listening to this episode and you are someone living with inflammatory breast cancer, the second Thursday of every month, we have a support group just for you. We are the first in the nation to actually bring together all of those diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer, IBC, and actually have a professionally moderated support group for people just like you. So please hop on over to survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events to get all of the details and see all the fun activities and events that we're offering every week and every month. I finally decided maybe I just need to say I live with it because even though I'm not in active treatment, You'd live with cancer every day. Welcome to the conversation. As Laura said, I'm a a long-term IBC person. I was diagnosed in 1994, back when very few of us survived. In fact, when I contacted the um, National Cancer Institute, they had an 800 number back in those days. Remember, this is pre-internet. And I asked them to send me what they had on inflammatory breast cancer. And I got a one-page response, a letter uh, that was just a photocopied sheet that basically said, too bad you have this, you're going to (laughs) die. The statistics at that point were 50% of us, uh, oh, you know, I had a 3% chance of living to five years. And my doctor had been a little less optimistic and told me I had 12 12 to 18 months with aggressive treatment. But I tend to be a glass half full person. And when I read the 3%, I just said, well, somebody's got to be in that 3%. I took statistics. 
So until the dirt hits me in the face, I'm going to assume I'm going to be in the 3%. So I have the distinction of being the first person at my uh, community cancer center to receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy, thanks to my forward-thinking doctors calling the National Cancer Institute and saying, what should we do with this person? And there was one study that suggested that for advanced breast cancers, that they might do better if given neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So fortunately, we, we, I was a trial of one. And uh, so I was given neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And at that point in time, there were only three drugs FDA approved for the treatment of breast cancer. Those were adriamycin, cytoxin, and 5-FU. And 5-FU has now been reintroduced as Zoloda. That's what the oral form of uh, Zoloda is. It's broken down in the body to the same components as 5-FU. And so now it's, it's used in a very different way, but I got that triple chemo cocktail. And very experimental, they changed my doses regularly because I was not having a response to treatment. And my surgeon was unwilling to do surgery until he saw a significant change. And he had treated one IBC patient in his history. So I'm very fortunate that he too wanted to be as cautious as possible. And he, when I finally did get to surgery after six rounds of chemotherapy, I still had residual disease in the breast, but he gave, did a very, very aggressive mastectomy, removing lots of extra tissue, which has created some issues for me with my muscles in, uh, in my shoulder. But again, I remind myself I'm here. So I'm very grateful for that piece. And then I also did radiation and I did extra radiation. So my whole treatment plan was, um, let's just say, not typical. And I've often wondered why no one wants to study me and find out why I'm still here since I'm such an unusual situation. But it's one of the things that I think pushed me into being interested in research myself as a nurse by profession. Um, I was always reading any medical journal I could find, and there just was not much about inflammatory breast cancer in those days. I had a very difficult time finding much of anything in the literature, and things were not as easy for patients to access then either as they are now. Because, of course, we didn't have internet when I was treated. It wasn't until a number of years later that I was back finishing my bachelor's degree in nursing uh, while working as a mental health nurse that the internet became a thing. And I met a group of people online who had inflammatory breast cancer. I was doing research on how support groups might change things. Uh, the internet might change things for people with rare cancers. And I was also studying support groups to write my project thesis for graduation. Little did I know how prophetic that was. So I have a bound volume back there on one of those bookshelves that 
talks about my research I did during that time when the internet was so very new. But it was there that I met some other folks who also had interest in research and Owen Johnson, who'd lost his um, wife to inflammatory breast cancer, agreed that unless we had some research, nothing was going to change. And I said, well, that's how I feel. It's fine to be on here and talk to one another and complain about how crummy the disease is. But if we were going to make a difference, we needed to get out there and knock on doors. And so we decided in 19, August of 1999 to start the Inflammatory Breast Cancer Research Foundation. Owen lived in Alaska. I lived in actually close to where I live now in central Virginia. And uh, my husband and I went to Alaska to celebrate my graduation and my five-year survival. And my husband will jokingly say, 40 cups of coffee, and about three hours later, this is all history. <laughs> because we immediately had a synergy in our interests about research and inflammatory breast cancer. And uh, we came back home after our trip there. and. Uh, we began the process to become a 501c3. And I never dreamed I was going to be doing anything in research or advocacy for that matter. When I was diagnosed, I was saving up money to go back to school and be a nurse midwife. This was not my plan. I was waiting for my daughter to graduate from high school. But I, as, I would never say cancer was a gift. I'm not, I'm not in that camp, but I would say I've had opportunities and my life has gone a direction that's brought so much into my life that I'm grateful that I was able to go in this direction that, you know, the, I would not have asked for the cancer, but because of that, it, probably opened new doors and took me in a very different direction than I would have gone otherwise. Can you tell me a little bit about the infancy stage, how you started the organization? What was the beginning like? As we started the organization, you know, we were very naive. I knew nothing about nonprofit work. Neither did Owen. We joke and say we were built flying the airplane while we built it which is probably not the smartest thing to do, but maybe most people wouldn't do a nonprofit if you knew what you were getting into either. Oh my gosh, you're totally preaching to the choir here. And we did, we started just finding out who might be interested in doing inflammatory breast cancer research and finding out what they needed. We were told samples were needed for research study. So we said, okay, we should be able to figure out how to do a biobank. And in 2005, we did. We opened a, a biorepository of inflammatory breast cancer tissue and blood samples, all patient-driven, but under an IRB. So this was an official uh, research project, and we were doing everything properly. This was not in a freezer in my uh, garage. <laughs> we wanted to make sure people knew we were doing this properly. We have funded almost half a million dollars worth of research over 20, 23 years. We have managed to get the National Comprehensive Cancer Network to develop an inflammatory breast cancer 
treatment guide, as well as they have adjusted the diagnostic um, and screening guidelines to include inflammatory breast cancer in the wording about skin changes and breast pain and some of those areas where before they did not, realizing that the only way to really change things within the system was to work within the system. You can't expect doctors to do something just because an, an advocacy group said so. <laughs> they need to, they listen to their peers. So I think um, I'm not good about um, tooting our own horn, I've been told. Um, I'm a good pastor's wife in, in some respects. I'm, I try to... Uh, put other people forward and not promote myself or the organization, but there are times I need to be sure I'm promoting the organization because we have done some very good things, I think, in our our lifetime. We are um, uh, all volunteers. None of us are paid, and we all work from our own homes. So I'm sitting in the international headquarters of the Inflammatory Breast Cancer Research Foundation which recently moved from Indiana to Virginia. <laughs> so I, I guess um, I was asked a few years ago, maybe it's as much as six now, to open a meeting, uh, an international inflammatory breast cancer meeting, and was told I was to give the expert opinion and I was really uncomfortable with that term. I don't consider myself to be an expert by any means. But as I thought about it, I was realizing that I probably had dealt with the disease longer than anybody else who was in that room, physicians included. And so I reminded everyone that, you know, we patients have our PhDs. We're, we have our personal history of disease. We are experts at living with this stuff. We may not have gone to med school. We may not um, have some of the book learning that the medical folks have, but you know we are experts. And that's one of the reasons that I'm such a passionate patient advocate, because I think we need not just a seat at the table, we need a voice at every table, and there needs to be more than one token advocate there. We need to be there to bring that patient experience and remind them that you have to give mice cancer. We get it without even trying, obviously. And so that's part of my passion for doing what I do. And the amazing number of wonderful people I've known in 23 years whose lives were cut short. Throughout your 20 plus years, um, you know, experiencing living with inflammatory breast cancer, what have you seen drastically and significantly change since 1994? Oh, my goodness. Well, like I said, there were only three drugs available when I was diagnosed. We didn't even know about her two back then. <laughs> and so... There's just been so much change in medicine in general um, and just the very fact that you can go to a meeting like San Antonio now and you can see some posters on IBC 
we still seldom make it to the podium. But we'll still get there. <laughs> Trust me, we'll get there. Um, we have tried to help bring some clinical trials specific for IBC, but they're hard to fill because we're there's no um, geographic group of us. You know, we're spread out all across the United States, and it's not always easy for people to travel to a trial. But the only way to really get that information about how an inflammatory breast cancer patient responds to a given treatment is through a trial, but you have to have enough people to be able to really figure that out or have a trial willing to have a, a specific cohort for IBC. Again, extra paperwork, which isn't easy to have happen. When you were at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, SABCS, did you get a chance to walk around the exhibit halls or the, the poster sessions to get a sense of how much research was being done on inflammatory breast cancer? There were, this year, maybe not quite as many posters as I've seen in some previous years. I tried to get around to all of them that I could. I'm always um, trolling the poster area for young investigators who are doing something maybe in the locally advanced space, but maybe haven't um, explored IBC yet and just suggest that that's something they may want to look at and encourage young investigators in that area because it's good if we can get some people early in their career to get invested in the disease. Then when I go back next year and I show up and I see they have a poster again, they'll go, oh no, here she comes again. <laughs> Can you talk to us a little bit about the staging with inflammatory breast cancer? Yes, IBC is always at least a 3B um, because it grows in the lymphatic layer of the skin. So it has invaded the skin. If it has gone to some of the localized lymph nodes like mine did, my, I had some lymph nodes positive by my collarbone. I would have been considered a C. There was not a, C, a stage 3C when I was diagnosed. It was just um, the B. So there have been changes over the years a bit in that. Um, but because inflammatory breast cancer is a clinical diagnosis uh, as opposed to a pathological diagnosis, not all doctors will recognize it. They may just say it's advanced breast cancer. Um, if it has spread to another organ, of course, then you're metastatic, and it may only say in your um, files that you're uh, metastatic breast cancer or stage four. And consequently, since we don't have a diagnostic code associated with IBC, it's really difficult here in the U.S. to know how many of us there are. This is so helpful, Jeannie, and I think you bring up several great points here in understanding the difference between a clinical diagnosis and a pathological diagnosis. And I think this is why sometimes IBC is so hard to diagnose and sometimes misdiagnosed, because a lot of times the inflammatory breast cancer does not present with a lump or shows up on routine mammogram screenings. And so from a clinical perspective, 
someone might present with swelling or redness. And so the doctor, oncologist, or primary care, or whoever you're first seeing, might do what is called the clinical diagnosis because of your physical symptoms. Whereas the pathological diagnosis usually is associated or sometimes called the surgical staging, right? So once they remove the tissue, the pathologist then is able to take a look at the biology at the molecular level to then decide and determine the type of cancer it is. Right now, the SEER statistics are representative anyway. Only a certain uh, bit of the population is studied for SEER data. For those of you listening and unfamiliar with the SEERS database, SEERS stands for Surveillance, Epidemiology, and End Result Program. But ultimately, the SEERS database is a program that provides information on cancer statistics in an effort to reduce the cancer burden among the U.S. population. It is supported by the Surveillance Research Program, SRP, and the NCI's Division of Cancer Control and Population Science, DCCPS. We'll save the whole discussion on Sears data and statistics because that is a whole other conversation about how things are recorded and presented. And I'd like to invite you to tune in next week where we are going to continue the conversation with Jeannie Mason and talk about the inflammatory breast cancer scoring card and what happens after you've been initially diagnosed. What are the processes and treatment options that are available to you? As always, Jeannie, thank you so much for being a guest on Breast Cancer Conversations. And for all those listening, be sure to hop on over to survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events to check out all of our free programs and services, including our support group for inflammatory breast cancer, second Thursday of every month. And thank you all for listening and tuning in week after week here on Breast Cancer Conversations. Please be mindful that all of our content and information is for educational purposes only and is never a substitute for medical advice. If you want to hang out, again, please check out survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events, where you can RSVP to our Thursday Night Thrivers weekly meetup, our Movement Monday classes, workshops, seminars, and so much more. We can also continue the dialogue online via social media. Our Instagram handle is survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and you can follow us on Twitter at SBC underscore ORG. Until next time, keep on thriving.